0: thank you that he has completed the work of salvation on the cross. He's been resurrected, ascended, and seats at your right hand. And in his name we come to you tonight asking that the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to your great plan of history and to give us that root of stability and to endure because we know where history is going. We thank you now in his name. Amen. Okay, we've been going over some of the details of the last days of the church, and this necessarily, as I have prefaced each Thursday night, I've prefaced by saying that this part of church history, the last two two or three centuries, is a time when eschatology is being worked on. So... If you you imagine yourself put back, say, in the 1600s when salvation was being worked on. So that's why there's a diversity going on here. But we believe that it's slowly clarifying because what happens in all these discussions, whether you review the discussion of the Trinity, the discussion of the incarnate Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, um, the appropriation of Christ by faith and justification by faith the orthodox biblical position emerges because it's scriptural and consistent. And usually when you work through these issues, as vexing as they may be, you are drawn more deeply into the scriptures to appreciate the consistency of our God. God is rational, and pieces fit together. That doesn't mean we always can encompass them, uh, sovereignty and human responsibility being a good example, but the you, you wind up in a, in a position that's stable. Now, I want to introduce, well, we've talked to the, about two vocabulary terms. I'm going to use three vocabulary terms tonight as labels for the categories of different approaches to this problem. We talked about preteritism. We've talked about and we will be going on Futurism. There's actually an in-between position called Historicism, which we won't go into, but I'll just talk briefly about it. <clears throat> Remember, the Thursday night class is not a class on eschatology, it's not a class on exegesis, it's a class on framework, and so therefore we're touching touching basic doctrines, and events, and broad areas of scripture. <clears throat> If it's eschatology, we'd be spending eight months on some of this stuff, but we're not going to for this class. Okay, here's the three definitions. Preteritism, preterite means past. So the preterist class of views are those views which say that prophecy is completed, that it's not future, it's past. That's preterism. Futurism is the category of beliefs, and we're going to see four or five of them, different futurist positions starting tonight. <clears throat> Futurists are all agreed that the prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. Now the historicists that's another story. <clears throat> historicists believe that the prophecies are being fulfilled now during the church age. I mention this because wherever you have date sending that Jesus is gonna come, the latest one was Woisthard or whatever his name was, that wrote in the 80s why the rapture was gonna occur in 1988. Well, obviously it didn't. Um, You had in the 19th century, um, William Miller, are the Seventh-day Adventists. Why? Because they believe Jesus coming back in 1844. Everybody got on a hill and waited for it and it didn't happen. And then he recomputed and it was 1846 or something, I don't know. But the point is that the reason they date set is because historicism believes that the prophecy is being fulfilled now. Now, let's, let's put our thinking hats on here. If a person believes that the prophecies about the return of Christ and about the book of Revelation and all that is going on in the church age, then when you see sections in the book of of, uh, Revelation about 1260 days and they convert that to years and they work out all this mass to to make a, a prediction of the return of Christ, they're operating as though those prophecies apply to the church. Now, well, if you do that, what you, in effect, have done is you've destroyed the distinction between the Church and Israel. Because you're taking prophecies, remember we introduced this whole chapter, what do we say was characteristic of Israel? They have a calendar, they have clock time, remember, the first part of this chapter. You don't have clock times and calendar times associated with passages that are specifically applied to the Church. You have the clock times out of the Old Testament when Israel is in view. So the historicist position was a position that was adopted actually by a lot of Protestants. And the reason was that by adopting that position, guess who they could make equal to the Antichrist? The Pope. So the anti-Catholicism of Protestantism used the Book of Revelation as a club against the Roman Catholic Church by picturing the rise of the Antichrist out of the revived Roman Empire. See, Roman, 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 Roman Catholic Church. And so they like to to use that, and that was a big discussion point. But today, you have pieces of historicism somehow bubble up in some Christian writings. Uh, About the only people left on earth that are historicists in our day are Seventh-day Adventists. And the um, people who write books about Jesus going to return in year X. Um, I'll tell you who was a historicist in this regard was the guy who came out of Seventh-day Adventism, the, uh, what was it, the Wacko and Waco, um, what was his name, Koresh. Uh, people say, what kind of a cult was that in Waco, Texas? It was a historicist cult. They believed they were in the tribulation. They believed in the Antichrist coming. And that's why they were all withdrew into their little colony, waiting for the end of the world. And Koresh's early upbringing... So, it all made sense, if you know the theology behind it. It wasn't some screwy thing. the media, being as... They... All they could say was religious cultists believed, but if they had predict the return of Christ by taking these references to one. 260 days or whatever it is in the book of Revelation in doing that they're actually following a historicist position not a futurist position it's kind of it's a mixed um, mixed method they're trying to dip into historicism and trying to marry it with futurism it's not a consistent position all right we've worked with preteritism and we're with that that's the idea that Christ came in some sense in AD 70 and that the Book of Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70. <clears throat> preteritism has come in strong, particularly in Ireland, by the way, because uh, it comes out in, into reform circles. Uh, um, it's, a, it's a device that they feel like they can get rid of the pessimism of these passages of scripture that deal with catastrophe, um, the apocalyptic ending of history. They don't like to have that in front of them. they rather have that behind them so they have an open, what they call an open history to progress, get that all behind us. So that's preteritism. So we talked about it. Notes have given details about it. And tonight we come to the first of several views that are classified underneath this. We'll have Uh, four views to take up post-tribulationism, three-quarter tribulationism, mid-tribulationism, and pre-tribulationism. So, all four of these are classified as futures. They all share a common belief that these prophecies are for the future, so they're all agreed to that. Where they're not disagreed is to where in this future time is the rapture or the end of the church versus the end of Israel. We're back to the church program and the Israel program. How do we get these two different programs of God together and synchronize them? So we're going to start tonight with the post-tribulational position. And as you could infer from the word post, post-tribulationism means what? It means This rapture, the end of the church, comes post, after the tribulation. So the picture, if you want to draw a line, is that in the future, we're we're here now, we're ahead of that, but then the world will come into this great period of tribulation, and there will be the rapture and the return of Christ, and then if they're premillennialists, um, and dispensationalists, they'll hold to a millennial kingdom. If they're all male, they'll just have a picture like this. Tribulation, rapture, return of Christ, and the eternal state. Whereas this one has a thousand years, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. Both of those are post-tribulation. Okay. <coughs> Now, most recent post-tribulationism uh, is the top one, is this one, Millennial Kingdom type people. That wasn't always the case. A lot of the post-tribulational arguments were devised by all millennialists. So... And, and I imagine there's still a lot of people like that around. Um, one of the characteristics of post-tribulational authors is they're very uh, vitriolic against pre-tribulationism. Uh, it's a reaction to pre-tribulationism and they feel like they're house cleaning to get rid of it. So they have a kind of a... Uh, a lot of their writings are kind of uh, sarcastic, I and mean, it's just a, f- a flavor of their writings that you can get. Um, it has occurred on page 126 of your notes. Um, the next uh, paragraph that begins during recent church history. We're going to ha- we're going to get into some scriptures tonight, but I just want to get the you know, just get a starting head here. During recent church history in which eschatology began to be refined and sharpened, there arose a strong emphasis on literal interpretation of prophetic texts with a rise in popularity of premillennialism. Now, the premillennial means that there's going to be a millennium and Christ is going to come before that. The same literal hermeneutic that led to resurgent premillennialism also led a differentiation between the rapture and the return. Now, I'm going to use those two terms technically, but I'm warning you that that's just my terminology for Thursday night class, and I'm doing that just as a teaching device. But the word return, parousia in the Greek, can be used at either one of these events. The New Testament uses the return of Christ, and it can mean the rapture, it can mean the return. But I've got to have a vocabulary term. I could say, I guess, first part of the return, second part of the return, if I phrased it that way. But what we're talking about here are these two arrows. The rapture, which is the end of the church. Remember we said the, the milestones of the church, the church age goes down into history and time. There's the rapture when the church, two things happen all the dead in Christ are resurrected. And number two, all the living in Christ are transfigured. So there's two things that happen simultaneously, probably only seconds apart, right there. The dead in Christ shall rise, and the living in Christ shall be transfigured. When that happens, the entire church, all the people in the church age who have ever lived Peter, Paul, everybody else, get resurrection bodies and go to be with the Lord forever in the resurrection bodies. That's the end of the church. The church is done in history. Now, if history is to march on after that clock time, that's we'll set a clock at that point, T sub zero. If after that point in history there are believers who will be saved the same way believers were saved before Christ in the Old Testament, Gentiles, namely the atoning work of Christ. They may have known less about it, but they were saved on that judicial basis. They will not be technically Christians. They'll be believers in the sense of Old Testament saints, and they'll be believers in the sense of the Gentile saints. Okay. Now, that's the church Israel, oh, and also I might add, what were the other milestones for the church? The rapture, and then what happens? The Bema seat, that's the judgment where every believer in Christ is evaluated on the basis of works, whether it would, they were done with the motive of the Holy Spirit, as unto the Lord, whether we were trying to impress somebody with some false motivation, peer pressure, I was going to impress my wife, I was going to impress my husband and impress the pastor, impress the my girlfriend, a boyfriend or whatever and all that stuff that'll all be getting, get rid of all that stuff and the genuine stuff that was done is under the Lord will be rewarded and recognized And then there's the marriage supper that happens when the bride, the body of Christ, and the head of the body, Jesus, are coming back into history, as it were, as a completed entity. So that's, that's the church. Now Israel is going to go on, and because Israel has left Christ behind, because obviously every Jew that believed in the Messiah has become a Christian, leaving the Jews that don't believe in Christ back in the status of Israel, the nation Israel. Israel is a nation, the church isn't. Israel is a nation that goes on in history and is going to go through a period of trouble. And remember we said that's the milestone identified with Israel, a time of tribulation, codenamed. The Day of the Lord sometimes. Other times, Day of the Lord means slightly different. But Day of the Lord is a term for it. Jacob's Trouble is another term for it. Daniel's 70th week is another title of this period. But the point, the big idea in this is that the Tribulation has nothing to do with the church. The Tribulation has to do with Israel. That's what it's for it has to do with Israel in that Israel must be brought nationally to recognize whom? to recognize the Lord Jesus there's got to be a national recognition because Israel is God's nation there has to be a national repentance that's what Jesus was referring to when he said you will not see me addressing the nation you will not see me until you welcome me back and when the nation Israel welcomes the Lord Jesus he will come back in that sense and I'll only this I qualify but in that sense that's one of the impediments to world peace today if Israel would welcome the Lord Jesus back we would have world peace But Israel is not in a position spiritually that she will do that right now. And this is one of the functions of the tribulation is to get Israel ready to do that national confession, to to do her job as the the priestly nation among the human race. The other story about the tribulation is to settle scores with all the Gentile nations on the basis of how they treat Israel that goes back to the terms of the Abrahamic Covenant. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse them who curses you. And during the tribulation, nations will have a time, whole people groups will have a time of decision as to whether or not they recognize that it's Israel's God who runs history. And whether they like Jews or they don't like Jews, they better bow their knee to the God of Israel. That's the decision. Or they can choose the other way. You're for Israel or you're against her. And you want to be against her? Fine. Your choice. But you share the judgment and the wrath of God. That's the issue during the tribulation. So the problem then is how to marry these two together. And the picture the post-tribulational position takes is that as we go into this period of seven years, if I'm a literal post-tribulation, remember tonight, I guess for simplicity, we'll just take the literal post-tribs, not the old-fashioned loosey-goosey ones, but the seven-year tribulational period, the church will parallel that, will still be on earth during all those seven years, and at the end of that period, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes down to the kingdom, the church will go up just prior to that. The rapture, in other words, and the return occur quasi-simultaneously, almost, almost the same time. But they are part of, a, of, of one event. Now, this is crucial because on on the next paragraph on page 126, here's the central issue. What post-tribulationism needs to prove is that the rapture and the return can be considered the same event. That the differences between those two things, those two clusters of Scripture, that the differences do not, are not um, sufficient, they're not big enough, they're not numerous enough to say that, hey guys, we just really can't get these two things together, they really are two distinguishable events. So to be a post-tribulationist, you have to show, somehow, that those two things are part and parcel of the same thing. So we're going to spend a lot of time now with Table 9 because we need to be acquainted with these scriptures. And that's about all we're going to get to is Table 9 tonight. Because from now on, we're going to look at a bunch of scripture. If you look at Table 9, page 127 in the notes, you'll see that what I've attempted to do there is to um, list features or a cluster of scripture references that talk to the church about the church's end. So if you want to clarify at Table 9 where that word rapture is, you might want to put a parenthesis of something else that might tie this together better for you, and that is that if you write right next to the word rapture, um, parenthesis, end of the church, because that's the, the spirit of those verses. All those verses that you see in that left column in Table 9 are addressing the end of the church. And it's what the apostles are saying about where the church is going to go in history. Now, on the right column, all those scriptures, and you'll notice there's Old Testament scriptures there. There are no Old Testament scriptures in the left column only in the right column, that cluster of scriptures speaks of the destiny of Israel. So the left column is the end of the church and the right column is the end of Israel. Okay? Now we're going to go through Table 9 row by row. So let's get out our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. In verse 16 it says for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with a voice of the archangel with a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now where it says meet the Lord in the air, how do you suppose someone who is a post-tribulationist would handle that verse? Well, the way they'd handle it is Christ is coming down, the church meets him and comes down with him. It's like people go out of a city wall to meet the coming dignitary and welcome him back. That's how the post-tribulationist views that, that passage. But, the point is, verses 15, 16, and 17 are addressed clearly to the church. And clearly in the church, it's talking about resurrection. It's clearly talking about uh, transformation there, transfiguration. Now, if that's the case, now we're gonna look at, we'll, we'll try to mirror this chart table nine. This is the church. The picture here is that you go on in time, and then there's an end, and all who are in Christ at that point have resurrection bodies. Now, question. Let's let's ask a question of the text. I'm sitting here with a stopwatch, okay? Bang, it happens so I'm an unbelieving reporter work for Ted Turner and I have a watch that I, I synchronize and two seconds later I take a readings you know I'm, maybe I'm watching satellite or something now who is left on earth two seconds after this event believers unbelievers or mixed if everybody is resurrected and removed who was in Christ then there aren't any believers left two seconds after this event correct? something you want to remember now if that event really happens this way there are the big fat zero after that as far as the presence of believers in history they're all gone none left now that doesn't mean that two seconds later somebody can't Trust the Lord. It's not that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that as of that moment there aren't any believers left. You have to start repopulating the segment of believers on earth after that event, but you have to start from zero, because there aren't any after that event. Okay. So that's why on table nine, row number one, it says only and all of those in Christ are resurrected or translated. Okay, That's what the text says. That's the logical de- fitting of the content of that text. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Here's the resurrection, one of the few resurrection, explicitly resurrection texts out of the Old Testament. Now it's interesting, the Lord Jesus built his doctrine of the resurrection uh, not out of either one of these texts I'm going to show you. The Lord Jesus inferred resurrection from the Old Testament covenant structure. The Lord said, remember the passage in the Gospels when he said, and, and by the way, this is, uh, he paid attention to the grammar of the text. Don't know whether they taught their young Hebrew boys and girls to diagram sentences when they went through their little schools then. Uh, I'm sure they paid more attention to reading than they did sex education then, but the point is that Jesus built his his case on a point of grammar. He said, the Bible says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't say he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he is the God, and he will be the God. And implicit in Jesus' argument is that man cannot perpetually exist without a body. But those guys are dead, so there's going to be a resurrection. Now, that's the logic of Jesus. It's sort of an indirect approach. So, we're not going to use that tonight. I mean, that's valid. But I just want to take you to the passage, a uh, key passage in the Old Testament regarding resurrection. And that is Daniel chapter 12, 2. There's a debate about, by the way, how to translate this out of the Aramaic. And if this was a class in exegesis, we'd go into all that, but we won't, won't tonight. Chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, will awake these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." And it was that verse that Jesus did refer to in John when he said, there will be a resurrection unto the good and a resurrection unto damnation. So he continues that, that motif. The Old Testament knows about resurrection doesn't know about translation like that 1 Thessalonians passage. There's another passage on resurrection in the Old Testament. Turn over to Isaiah 26. In fact, I was uh, talking to Carol earlier and uh, we we both were thinking about Job. Job believed in resurrection. What did he say? In the latter days... I will see him in my flesh. So he looked forward. Now where did he get the information from? Beats me, got it from the Noahic Bible, plus all the knowledge that the people's group that populated the planet after the great flood uh, spread out. But in Isaiah 26, it's talking about verse one, in that day the song will be sung in the land of Judah. It's looking forward. To the time of the kingdom. Isaiah 26 is sometimes called a a little apocalypse of the Old Testament, but the, the, the context of this Old Testament passage is looking forward in time to that kingdom to come, to the nation Israel. Then included in this is verse 19, and it says, "...your dead will live, their corpses will rise." You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your due is the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So there's another resurrection passage in the Old Testament. So the resurrection is explicit and implicit in the Old Testament. So this is talking about Israel now. And you can place this... Because clearly these passages are talking about something that happens prior to this kingdom time, this millennial kingdom. So the resurrection that is being discussed happens right there. See, the post-tribulationist says, yeah, well, see, the rapture is just part of that. And he mixes these two together. says that there's no difference between them. Well, there's a problem with that, too. Let's turn to Matthew 24. Mount Olivet Discourse. This is a very critical discourse. Matthew, chapter 24. Because Jesus is addressing certain questions the disciples asked him about the end time. And you'll notice the questions, verse 1 and 2, 3, watch how the passage starts. They're sitting there, Matthew 24, 1 and 2, They're looking across the Kidron Valley, and they're looking at the temple. So, what nation are they in? Israel. What are they looking at? The temple. Physical temple or spiritual temple? Looking at the physical temple. Well, if that's the context, then you would expect what follows now has to do with Israel and the temple. Not to... You know, we're not imagining things here that's the context of that scripture so he said to them do you not see that all these things I say unto you not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down and as he was saying this the disciples he came to him privately saying tell us when are these things going to be what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age what age Ter- church age church doesn't exist here Church hasn't even started. Back, remember, three or four chapters ago? What did we say was true in the book of Acts two, a year ago when I was teaching? Let's, let's recall something about the book of Acts. We've got to get our history straight. We've got to interpret Scripture in the time in which the Holy Spirit wrote it, and the context, the historical context. We have the four Gospels, so here's the time of the Gospels. The time that depict the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Now, as Jesus was introduced, by whom, by the way? Who is the introducing prophet to the Lord Jesus? John the Baptist. Just like in the Old Testament, the prophets always introduced the kings. So you have John the Baptist first. Then you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he has a ministry and he gets more popular and more popular and more people follow him until halfway through all four gospels, there's a rejection of the Lord Jesus and things go downhill. Matthew 12 is the dividing point in the gospel of Matthew. In John, it's uh, about 10, 11, somewhere in there. So all four gospels record the same thing. And it's at this point when the Lord Jesus changes his ministry begins to a new teaching to the disciples and says I'm going. I'm not going to stay here. I'm leaving. And they say, "What? This wasn't on the program. You're the Messiah. You're supposed to bring in the kingdom here. What's this? I'm going away business." Sorry. The nation's not ready for me yet. And so, the Lord Jesus gently prodded his disciples to understand that there would be an extension of the period of history in which they existed, that the kingdom was no longer imminent to them, that he would come back. So, we all know what happened. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, he rose from the dead, he went to heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit. Now, recall the book of Acts. Very critical to understand what those first few chapters in the book of Acts are doing. Peter, although we know now, in retrospect, the church was formed on the day of Pentecost, they didn't know it then. For all they knew, this was another opportunity for the kingdom to be offered to the nation. And who was the spokesman that literally offered the kingdom to the nation in the first few chapters of Acts? Namely, Acts 2 and Acts 4. Peter, And that address is not a church-age evangelistic address. You look at it. He's addressing Jews, and he's saying, if you will repent and accept him, he will come back from heaven, and the times of refreshing will happen. He's talking about the kingdom coming. So, the kingdom was offered, kingdom number one, that's the first offer of the kingdom, during the Gospels. After Christ was rejected in grace, he gave them a second option through Peter and gave him a second option to trust him so that that kingdom could begin. And tragedy upon tragedy, as he foretold in that parable when the king sent his servants to the people, first he sent the first group and they were rejected. And then the king sent the second group and they not only were rejected, they were killed and the book of Acts begins to record the murder of believers. The Gospels do not record one instance other than John the Baptist do not record any instance of murderous persecution. That begins in the book of Acts. So that parable of Luke 22 is a parable of this whole period of time. Now all during that period of time the church really isn't visible as the church The church gradually is made known throughout the rest of the book of Acts. As Israel goes down, the church comes up in prominence. And the man who was leading uh, agent in making the church prominent was whom? Paul. And when Paul was on the Damascus Road, I believe that's where he gained the insight into what the church was all about. Because you remember what he was doing. He was out to kill Christians and stop this new Jewish sect. And on the Damascus Road, he got intercepted by the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus' words that afternoon to Paul were, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me?" In other words, the people that Paul was murdering were somehow in union with this ascended Messiah. How could that be? And I believe Paul spent years prayerfully seeking the answer to that question. Why do you persecute me? When he wasn't persecuting him, he couldn't persecute him. He was up in heaven. How could he persecute Jesus if Jesus is in heaven? But Jesus said, you're persecuting me. And I think that triggered a whole mass of rethinking in his mind about this union. And Paul, more than any other writer of the New Testament, is the one who keeps going holding on. You are in Christ, you are in Christ. you are in Christ to sit. you are seated with him in the where, in the heavenlies. You're in union with this one who has ascended. Paul grabs hold of that with clarity. Peter sits around and he says, "Pay attention to what Paul's teaching. That's hard stuff because the Lord gave that insight to Paul. So, this is what's going on here. Now, Matthew 24 happens back here. Let's get where it was given in the flow of events, see? This is where you've got to look at the order and sequence of Revelation, and then learn to interpret Scripture in the time in which it was given. For example, let me give you a, a more graphic example. In Matthew chapter 10, back here, the Lord Jesus gave a commission to his disciples. Where did he send them? And where did he tell them, don't go to? He sent them in that first commission only to Jewish towns. You stay out of the Gentile towns. I only want you to go to Jewish towns. Okay? Does that look like the Great Commission to you? No. Great commission happened later on. But if you try to put those two commissions together, you're going to get a conflict. One time he's telling the disciples, don't. Next time he's telling the disciples, do. Why? Because there's been a progress here. You have to be flexible. As the plan of God unfolds in history, there are changes to it. So, in Matthew 24, you can read all the way through here, and you never once, encounter a peep about resurrection. Not a peep. Not a mention. Not an illusion. It's missing from the Mount Olivet discourse. And why is that? Because for the question that was being asked in verse 2, the resurrection was not an answer. The question was, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? and the end of this age. What age were they in at that point? They were not in the church age. They were in the age of Israel. So they're asking him, what's going to be the end of history? It's a Jewish question asked by Jews about a Jewish nation and does not have the church in view. Okay? So they're looking at this. They want to know about Israel. They don't know anything about the church here. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. Now on the right side, in the right column, row one of table nine, that's why I summarize it by saying the resurrection is not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. An Old Testament resurrection reference speaks of resurrection of some dead saints, but not of translation of Old Testament saints. So even in those resurrection passages, there's no emphasis whatever or mention even, of a translation. That's all new revelation. See, you've got to understand there is a progress in revelation as it goes on. Drop down to the next row. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, we'll, we'll come back to Matthew. But I want to contrast as we go down. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 major passage area on the resurrection the rapture 1 Corinthians 15:50 Now I say this brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God When the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, remember that case when uh, Doubting Thomas doubted? And what did the Lord Jesus ask him to do? Touch me. For a spirit has not flesh and... Didn't say blood. What did he say? Flesh and bones. Now here's the mystery, physiologically now. We're not talking bodies here, okay? Health, health lesson every person over 30 can get a bang out of this one. That body you're in is going to be replaced. The health care system won't be an issue for the resurrection body. Medicare won't be an issue for a resurrection body. But the resurrection body has a strange composition to it, because the only empirical, historical evidence we have of what it looks like is the Lord Jesus' body, right? No other bodies around like that. So we have to go based on the eyewitness accounts of what that body looked like. That body looks somewhat like the Lord Jesus, but not quite. It was a little different. Maybe it was because it was perfect, and the last last, uh, time they saw the Lord Jesus, he wasn't in too good a shape. But whatever it was, he said, touch me, Thomas, touch my flesh. And so, Thomas, you can just see him sitting there and, you know, you're not a spirit. You know, you came through the wall there, I think you're a spirit. No, I'm not a spirit. I materialized right in front of you, Thomas, and here I am. space, it can eat food, eat food, apparently doesn't need it, and it can go through walls. Now that's an amazing future that you have and every person who accepts Christ has. And it's a body that guarantees most of all, not just perfect health, but it's a body that doesn't have this sin nature embedded in it that tempts us to sin to turn away from the Lord all that burden will be removed you don't have to sit there and fight with the flesh all the time it's gone and the resurrection body is what makes eternity perfect because there's no there's going to be no repeat history there's not going to be another fall down a billion years from now No, that's all over so the resurrection body has this characteristic so in verse 50 when he says I say that flesh and blood Cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable or corruptible. Some translations read the idea. There is that our bodies, with flesh and blood, die. Uh, by the time you are born, you're dying already. You know, it's interesting. You see a newborn baby. You ever notice a newborn's baby's skin? And then you compare it with yours, especially if you're older. Jeez, all these wrinkles, and and you see that newborn baby, not a wrinkle on it, just perfect. But as that baby gets older, the scars and hard knocks, and that skin begins to age and age and age. Not a pretty sight, but that's because God built our bodies corruptible. Now you know that was an act of His mercy, that He did that? Because had He not done that, and had He given us bodies that were incorruptible, let me ask you a question. What would have happened when Adam and Eve sinned? And they could never die. They would be doomed forever to live in a fallen body. So in one sense, when you see your body dying around you and you're losing your body parts one by one, or they're functioning, just be thankful that it's just a process to get rid of the thing so we can get the next one. That's the resurrection body. Now that's what's going to happen. But in this passage in Corinthians, look at the emphasis in verse 50 and following. After he gets through making this radical distinction in bodies, he says, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So there everyone gets a resurrection body. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. So evidently this happens very, very rapidly. It's not a slow thing. This probably takes less than a second to occur. Now you talk about a transforming event in this history. I mean, crying out loud. Can you imagine this? That on every continent, simultaneously, there's this event that happens where all of a sudden resurrection bodies happen. Nobody can explain it. It is totally unpredictable. It has absolutely... Do you see any sign here, by the way? Notice, too, in verse 50, verse 51. We should not all sleep. In a moment, a twinkling of night, the last trump, the trump will sound. But the trump sounds in a twinkling of a moment. It's not saying the trump sounds and then a few weeks later the resurrection happens. This all happens instantly. It will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall be changed, for the perishable must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal must be put on immortality. You hear this all the time in Christian funerals. But when this perishable have put on imperishable, this mortal have put on immortality, then will come the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory now? Death, where is your sting? The sting of, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, see, on the basis of that hope, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. The whole world can be going to to hell in a handbasket, but those works that are done in the name of the Lord Jesus will accompany the resurrection body. There will be an existence after this. Okay, the force of that passage, along with 1 Thessalonians 4, is that we're in union with Christ. We share His body. We are going to be with Him. Now if you look to Matthew 25, which is our concluding verse tonight, because we're contrasting, row two of table nine. We've just done the left side of row number two, and now we're looking at the right side of that same row. And we're gonna look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. Now observe the text. Observe the details. This is still being addressed to the disciples. It is still being addressed to Israel. And it goes on and divulges certain things. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right, the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me to drink, I was a stranger, you invited me in, naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous shall answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger? And when did we see you sick? And the king will say, truly I say to you, to the extent you did it, to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me." And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the demon and his angels, for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing. Now you'll notice several things about this judgment that's happening. This is, this is a passage on judgment. And this is talking about when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again to the earth and he's going to set up his kingdom. Here's his kingdom. He's, going to, he's, he's, he's got a gate here visualize a gate and he's going to let some people through the gate and he's going to reject others now what is the basis of the acceptance or rejection just based on the you know prima facie view of the text it's their response who first of all who's gathered together it's not Israel what does it say who is gathered together it says the nations the Goyim Here the nations are gathered together for this great judgment. These are Gentiles. And these Gentiles are gathered together and they are judged. Gentile groups. Judged on whether or not they visited these people who are identified intimately with the Lord Jesus. So it's a judgment of Gentiles based on their responses to whoever these people are. And they're going to be judged on the basis of they help them, where they're sympathetic. It's a case where during the Tribulation you have this... Uh, well, maybe uh, give it a good example. Can you imagine living under Saddam Hussein right tonight? And you may be a very well-educated person. You may be a high officer in his military. But you even dare not turn against this man because he's got his agents all around. You get out of line and he's gonna take care of your wife. You get out of line and he's gonna take care of your daughter. You get out of line and he's gonna take he's gonna get you. He may not be able to get you personally, but he'll get your family. So are you gonna are you gonna revolt against the guy? I don't think so. Because he's got you. Now it's that kind of totalitarian environment when the antichrist rules world society, like a Saddam Hussein rules Iraq. Now comes the test. Are you going to visit, going to help the insurrectionists? Who are the insurrectionists during the reign of the Antichrist? They're the believers. They're people who have not received the mark. They're the people who refuse to bow their knee to the Antichrist. And in that totalitarian scheme, how would faith be shown? It would be shown by your allegiance with the insurrectionist movement or your capitulation and fear to go along with the totalitarians that were in charge. So there's a judgment based on this. But what's missing from this passage? Resurrection. And you'll notice what he says here is, he says, inherit the kingdom. There's no mention of resurrection. These people are in natural bodies and they go into the kingdom because the Millennial Kingdom is made up of people in natural bodies. Let's, let's turn to the Old Testament to see this. Let's turn to Isaiah 65. Here's one of many passages we could cite. but We want to close out on this one, because we want to see this nature of this Kingdom into which these people are invited to come. The Kingdom in the Old Testament is a blend of an earthly, mortal Kingdom as well as eternal state. And in chapter 65, verse 20, this is in the middle of a kingdom passage. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred, And the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. Are people dying in the millennial kingdom? Obviously. They're dying later in life, but there's mortality there. Now how can that be if they're made of resurrection bodies? See? They have to be natural bodies. The the millennial kingdom is made up of people in natural bodies. Otherwise you wouldn't have dying. It's, It's less dying than it is now. But nevertheless, it is dying. So the point is, and then verse 23 points out this reproduction, there's procreation going on, people having babies, something new and different, one new kingdom. They're reproducing natural bodies. There's no marriage and resurrection. So the picture that we have of this kingdom necessarily involves natural bodies. And that fits with Matthew 25 because the Gentile nations who will be admitted into this kingdom are those who have shown themselves by their treatment of the believers during the tribulational period, the insurrectionist party. And they are admitted to the kingdom. doesn't mean necessarily that uh, they're all believers at this point. They may be people who are unbelievers, but the Lord's going to admit them based on their response to the insurrectionist movement during the tribulation. Okay, we've got down two rows on table nine. And we're going to go through the others. We won't just take a minute and we'll just scan down those because next week we'll develop them more. Notice in the, row three, Christ comes in blessedness to deliver his body into eternity. On the right, Christ comes in judgment against the nations, including Israel, which we've just gone through. And you'll note that in the verses there, he's going to separate people. And both in Israel and uh, you'll see the past Matthew 24, Matthew 25. uh, There's something I want you to notice about that. Remember the idiom or the metaphor that John the Baptist used as he introduced the Lord Jesus. What did he say the Lord Jesus had in his hand? It said, he had, caught some translation that the fan is in his hand. Well, it wasn't a fan. It was a shovel, and it was used in the, in the grain. And what they would do is they'd shovel the grain up in the air, and the wind would blow and carry what off of the grain? The chaff. Key point. What was blown away and removed? Wheat or chaff? The chaff was removed. The wheat stayed. Now that's an interesting observation. In other words, Christ clears the earth of the clutter of people who have rejected him. And the people who have accepted him, he begins with that nucleus, the wheat, the good stuff. In the rapture, it's the other way around. Who is left in the rapture? The unbelievers are left, and the believers are taken. So I'm hoping to show you with Table 9, I know if you've never gone into this, this is getting kind of hairy, complicated. But let me just assure you that I have a method in my madness here. I'm taking you through Table 9 to show you that there there are differences here. And you've got to put yourself back as an Old Testament person would have when he saw similar type things to what? the coming of the Messiah. Didn't they see differences? What were some of the differences they saw in the Old Testament to the coming of the Messiah? They saw passages that spoke of His glory, and they saw passages that spoke of His suffering. And they couldn't get that together. Now we know why they couldn't get it together. Why? Because they're two different events. And so, similarly, we're working here with the rapture and the return that look different, and it ought to tip us off, because we ought to learn from what they had to learn when the Old Testament. The first advent, they had to learn that, ooh, there's differences here. Got to respect differences. So, Table 9 is a depiction of these differences. We're going to work our way through all these verses. Again, not thoroughly, because this is not a class in exegesis, unfortunately, or eschatology but I'm going to at least make you familiar with the passages and familiar with the overall arguments. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have a plan for history. And while details may be sometimes cluttered in our minds, we know the one who reigns. We know the Lord Jesus Christ will return. We know that evil will not have the final say. We know that every person will be involved in these coming events and that there will not be any person from Adam on to the last man or woman who live on the earth that will not, will, that will not be included in these, this grand climax to history. We're thankful that you have already worked things out to destroy Satan's legal uh, lock on the human race and that the next step is going to be to bind him, cast him aside, put him in prison for a thousand years, that the earth and human history can see what things look like apart from these demonic delusions and these evil spirits that hover through human history, deceiving, murdering, lying, and leading people astray. We thank you now in Christ's name that this is coming. Amen. We'll have a few minutes here, we're kind of late, but we'll have a short time, yes.
1: Dwelling
0: and comes down and to the New York, or does Jerusalem come down
1: somehow in the Millennial Kingdom? Where is that in the theme of the you,
0: you have a real estate problem here. I have a real estate. <laughs> uh, the whole Cube thing
1: really blows me away, but I'm not gonna get into
0: that. Okay. <laughs> well then that's you have an architectural problem. And from there you have a civil engineering problem. (laughs) Some people have an interpretation problem, too. Um, All right, the question concerns the New Jerusalem. And again, I tend to be leery about getting into all these little details. And the reason I am is because, as I say, this is not a class where we get into the details. I'm trying to get the big picture of the fact that history is going somewhere, it has a conclusion, and there are some interesting features to that conclusion that we want to get straight. But as to the New Jerusalem, we know that the New Jerusalem is a place that is the center of God's habitation in the new universe, the new heavens and the new earth. And it apparently will remind people in position, geometri- geographical position, on this new heavens and new earth, somehow it, it's in a place that corresponds to, to Jerusalem today and this earth. Now whether the new heavens and the new earth look exactly like the one that we live in, I don't know. But there must be some correspondence because terminology carries over. I'll give you an illustration. Um, people who have uh, studied the Old Testament point out that in Genesis 2, when it talks about what the earth looked like prior to the flood, it talks about four rivers coming out of Eden. Two of them are Tigris and Euphrates. And that has always made the point with people that, oh, gee, um, that's just a story about some mountains in northern Iraq. Well, not necessarily. The proper way to understand the terminology of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers today, and we'll hear a lot more about them in coming weeks, I suspect. The Tigris Euphrates River today were named Tigris and Euphrates by Noah and his family as they colonized the planet, who were using nouns from the previous Earth. So the Tigris and Euphrates rivers today are not the same as the Tigris, Euphrates rivers in Genesis 2, because it was a totally different geographical configuration. <clears throat> the, the, the map was different. I mean, you can look at Genesis 2, and you know that's not the map of the world today. Of course, the liberals say, yeah, that's because they didn't know what the map looked like. It's, it's, you know, <clears throat> but we can't accept that conclusion. So, similarly, um, think about when settlers came from Europe to America. What do we name our cities? York. New York. Where do we get those names from? England. That's where they came from. The nouns are familiar and they carry over. And so this thing, this new Jerusalem, is somehow functioning the same as the old Jerusalem would have functioned, had Israel operated according to the word of God. Now, what was in Jerusalem? The presence of God. Um, The uh, Shekinah glory. The temple was there. And so God's presence is in some special way localized in this future universe to come, in this new Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been the point. I mean, there's rabbinic commentators who believe that the geometric... if you if you take the planet Earth in its, in its pre-flood continental, however the continents looked like then, prior to the flood, uh, if you take a map back then, what corresponds to Jerusalem in this side of the flood was actually Eden in the other side of the flood. And the reason they do that is because God chose Jerusalem as his dwelling place, and he probably chose the same place latitude and longitude-wise, that the Garden of Eden was that. I don't know. But that's, that's the demand for continuity. So there's a continuity in that idea of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is some weird feature of the new creation. And people have held, uh, and I'm not a student of this, but I remember listening to Dr. Pentecost back years ago pointing out both he and Dr. Walbert held the idea that, I think they both did, to the idea that um, the New Jerusalem would be present and visible during the millennium, like it's orbiting the Earth as a, some sort of satellite. And then then it comes down at the end of that. But I you know, I, I can't speak directly to that because I haven't studied it that thoroughly to be feel confident of it. But you can't lose sight of the fact that These these passages of Scripture are talking about material, physical entities. This is not some spiritual thing. This is a physical thing.
1: Uh-huh. In the heavens or the universe, or and in the new, of course, you probably will answer this, but I'll ask it anyway. Who no, knows? Thank you. In the new creation.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, the Lord Jesus promised in John 14, 1, 2, and 3, that I will go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and you will be with me forever.
1: So the mansions that he refers to are
0: in... We don't know what those mansions are. We don't know
1: what they
0: no. are. They're referred to as being in heaven. Remember, that, that, that mansions passage in John 14 was addressed to the disciples, and it's a preview. Jesus is cagey about that, because, remember, when was it given? It was given prior to the church age. Church hadn't formed yet. There was no rationale for the existence of the church at that point. But it's, and it's interesting that of all the gospel writers, the rest of them guys don't even mention it. Synoptic guys don't mention that discourse. It was mentioned only by one, John. So, it must have been a, a, a talk that he gave that was just considered huh, that's interesting and it passed over by everybody there and it wasn't until years and years later that John said you know wait a minute he was hinting at something back when he was saying that I think I'll write that in my fourth gospel so John you'll see material in the fourth gospel you don't see in the other guys they wrote early John wrote late John had the, had the advantage of saying, oh, we, we're living in a whole new church age here. The other guys were, were also in the church age, but they wrote more historically than John wrote, more theologically, uh, There's a different style. But anyway, in that passage, to get back to that, Jesus mentioned these mansions. And if you think about the total number of believers from all of history... I mean, it's in the millions, if not billions. Now, they're not all going to be crunched into a, the state of Israel here. So, so, but, 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 there's, there is the position Augustine took at one point, I believe, in his writings, where he said that right now, the, in, during history as we know it, we are race confined to a physical planet Earth. There are these beings called angels. Now we're, I mean, obviously, they can become corporeal, take on a form of a body and visit. I mean, you know, angels unawares. He might have served dinner to an angel someday and not known it. We don't know. They came to Abraham's house and had steak dinner. So, so, our lots. And so we don't know what they do, but they evidently have domains, heavenlies, areas, and presumably they operate throughout the whole universe. So then the question comes, we're made lower than the angels, Psalm 8, uh, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be above the angels so that in the business of the universe, celestial as well as terrestrial, in the business of the universe there is now a human being in charge so that means all the galaxies uh... out to light years are being ruled today by a human being planet earth is a scene of the origin of the rulers of the universe and so it's it's a momentous you think start thinking through train yourself to believe the scriptures enough to draw conclusions big ones and think through what's going on here. That here, the momentous statement made that Jesus is above the angels. People kind of take it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. You know, we'll snooze for the next 15-minute sermon, and and, and never think through what what's just been said here. Something momentous has taken place. That the Lord Jesus, as a human being, the Son of Man, rules. In the celestial sphere as well as the terrestrial now when he says that the church is going to be with him and he is going to have that rule forever and ever and ever that's why uh, scholars have thought about that in eternity the whole universe becomes a dwelling place for believers now maybe we we get to go to a star or something who knows but I mean, this is all speculation, but it's speculation trying to draw out the implications of these momentous texts that because we're, we treat them so religiously and spiritually, we, uh, they're blunted in their force. And all I'm trying to do is, is to unpack them a little bit so that we realize there's lots of stuff in those verses and they're not just religious poetry. George.
2: What is it that uh, we don't talk about three advents instead of two? Is the second
1: advent that we talk about the beginning of the, the kingdom?
0: The second advent, George, is a, seri- is a complex of events. If you look up the Greek word parousia, which is the Greek term for coming, uh, it's used of both rapture and return. That's why I preface my remark tonight, is that I'm using them as separate terms here just for a pedagogical device. But when you read the text, you really, you'll see it used for that whole era. The whole tribulational era is is a day of the Lord, it's the coming of the Messiah, and it has these parts to it. So it's okay, it's
2: okay for us to talk in, in general terms when we say that yeah.
1: right, Christ, yeah. we could be anywhere. Yes.
0: Yeah, and all the complexities with it. That's what this whole discussion is about. Simply Christians trying to understand and unpack all these details. But the the details are all contained in a cluster. And the cluster is the return of Christ. The big idea is that he's returning physically, not in AD 70, he's returning physically to this planet, and he is going to establish a kingdom the likes of which humans have never even dreamed of.
1: But what we as believers are looking forward to hope is the rapture.
0: Yes. Because we are the rapture, and they come with him
1: with the... Rapture.
0: Yeah, that, that should... That, why we're trying to distinguish it is because we're trying to answer more with more precision that when those passages, like Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15, remember, let, let's back up a minute. Those passages were written to ordinary people in the most mundane of circumstances. Now, think about it. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 were written to local, ordinary believers in a local church who were concerned about dying. So this whole thing emerges out of a discussion of death and it emerges to give hope in the middle of death. Why? Those passages, I mean, Paul goes to funerals all the time and works for a funeral house. I mean, he probably hears this three times a week because why do people bring up those particular two or three passages, they're always the same ones, that everybody brings up to a funeral that has any biblical connection. Because they are there to help us deal with the problem of death.
1: So you know, the process of the sequence of events is that Christ comes down, he never the rapture. He comes down where we can see him and he calls, right? But he never he never actually
0: touches down. Well, in the pre trib in the pre trib position that's true. And the mid-trib position, that's true. The three-quarter-trib position, that's true. Most of the positions hold to that. It's only the post-trib that we're going through now holds that you, the, the, the church rises to meet him as he's coming down. Then in that position, is, what's it doing
1: with the seat and
0: Read the notes. Um, that's a good question question. Um because
1: they're
0: often right in our deal
1: with the possibly that the position of the marriage feast and the judgment is taking place somewhere
0: well, in this the realm I, in Well it's not just uh, yeah, well, it uh, well, I don't know where. It's going to be, but the timing of the event has—we have to, however, we reconcile Israel's end and the church's end. We've got to deal with those events, and that you'll see this in the notes uh, when Carol's talking about what happens to the bema seat. Well, that's the problem. One of the weaknesses of the post-tribulation position is that if the rapture and the resurrection occur at the same time, where do you put the bema seat? That's right. It's got to be a quickie because the church is coming back already to co-reign with Christ. So now what do you do with the Bema These are the questions that have to happen. You'll see in your notes another question. If the Millennial Kingdom is going to start... Remember, I made a big point tonight. One second after the, the rapture, how many believers are left? Zero. Well, if the rapture and the resurrection occur, how many believers you got to start the Millennial Kingdom with? Zero. You see my point? You gotta you gotta get some schema to handle this cluster of events that doesn't have these contradictions in it. So that's the problem with the post trib position, as you'll see in the notes. It historically has has failed to really answer the question of what about the Bema? What about the marriage supper of the land? When's that supposed to happen? What about the uh, starting the millennial kingdom and you've got no believers? Because everybody believers has been already put in the resurrection bodies and the millennial kingdom is made of people in natural bodies what do you do there so that, that's that's the kind of processes that you have to use to think through these things okay one more question then we've got to go I'm sorry Mike had Mike had prior claim go ahead Mike
2: Right. 25. Right. And taking that plus some of the ideas with the um, with the new covenant applying to the millennium, but also a believer living in a realm that looks similar to that Holy Spirit, not with the land promises and everything. Can we?
0: Yeah, there's a close alliance with them. Yeah, because of the yeah, New Covenant gives you the theological reasoning behind that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And
2: then, I hadn't seen
0: it he's saying, yeah. What did you do to me? Yeah. Um, there's a, the, the, the messing around with the insur. Oh, I call the insurrectionists. I'm using that term just because it, I think, characterizes the role of believers in the tribulation. They are looked upon as insurrectionists to the reign of the Antichrist. Um, that it to
2: be the future. they will be the king
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're the, they're going to become the nucleus uh in the in the natural body, sense. Yeah. But there's admittedly a lot of difficult questions with this material and and the reason it's so difficult is because we're not there yet. It's always easy to money going in quarterback after the game's over. And the game hasn't been played here yet. That's the problem. <clears throat> so all we can do is is get sort of vague positions about what's going on here. But we want to at least understand that you interpret Scripture literally, unless it's obviously a metaphor. The, God's plan, is rationally consistent. It's not contradictory. And the big idea is get a sense whenever the Lord Jesus is talking, or Paul is talking, or John is talking, or James is talking about the return of Christ, look at the context, the human context of his readers that were doing something that caused the author to bring in, that's what I'm interested in, because when we get through all this, and we can't apply it, it's just a waste of time, okay? So what I want to do at the end of this chapter, a big long chapter, it's going to be the largest chapter in the whole framework thing, but when you get to the end, it's all going to be on, well, so what? Now, what do we do with this truth? And we can't answer that if we, while we're looking at it, we don't see what were the people doing, what were their circumstances in their personal living that caused the apostles to raise the issue of the rapture. Well, already we know one, one, Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, talking about dying. So that at least we know that, that when it comes to death and dying, we are face to face with an eschatology. And anybody who approaches death and dying without a biblical eschatology has to substitute some other eschatology. Nobody has a no eschatology everybody has an eschatology. We all do. The question is whether the pieces, the chunks of truth in that resurre- into that eschatology are biblical or not. That's the only issue. But every person you talk to has an eschatology. I mean, even the atheist who says, I'm going to be just food for worms, has an eschatology. And you want to understand that because you back up from the eschatology the atheist who tells you, well, I'm just going to die and be worm worm food. Well, if you're just going to die and be worm food, then it really doesn't matter whether I shoot you or you just die natural for means, right? Because the worms eat you anyway. What difference does it make to the worms? So, by taking an eschatology, you can back up the person's belief system out of that. So that's what you want to learn to do. And not be... uh, See, so many Christians feel ashamed because they feel intimidated when somebody talks about the return of God. Oh, you religious people. I'm talking about return. Well, what do you believe about death? Do you worm food? Or what do you, what's your belief? And you put them on the defensive. Don't apologize for this. We have the only eschatology. Name another religion where somebody came back from the dead in a resurrection body to verify it. See, when we talk about resurrection, we're not talking about an idea here. Well, we are, but not just an idea. This is, when we talk about resurrection and the kingdom to come, we've already got the first person in it. We've already observed him in history. We know that the resurrection body looks like our body. It's not ten feet tall. The resurrection body is the same six feet or five and a half feet that we're at. It doesn't look like a guy from the Milky Way or something. It looks like a human being. Has face, eyes, can eat food. Now, that's data. That's data for an eschatology. So, that's my point about eschatology. It's a stabilizing, powerful area of truth because it conquers and envelops the worst cases in history, which is death. The worst thing we'll ever face is the end of our lives. Now, if our belief system doesn't handle that question, it's insufficient. That's why eschatology is so important, and that's where we're going finally with all this. It's nice to ask questions, and I'm not trying to you know, hinder people from asking questions about what happens with the New Jerusalem coming down, and we've got a civil engineering issue here, and how does it build, but, but the bigger idea is how was this taught? For application in the pages of scripture. And and when we do read those, do read the context, because they were people no smarter than we are. And the Lord shared these things with them for a reason. He had to have a reason for doing it. He wasn't putting on a magic show. He wasn't trying to do tell a fantasy. This is not Disneyland. This was real life. And so there's reasons for it. Okay, well, next week we'll go further in Table 9.